Ciao. I'm Alice Rosthorn. Welcome to the Triennale Milano's Enzo Mori Costellazione podcast series, a collaboration between me and Hans Ulrich Obrist, curator of the Enzo Mori retrospective at Triennale Milano. This particular episode is with the brilliant Italian designer maker Martino Gamper, who has a very special perspective on Mori, as he was taught by him at the beginning of his own career when Martino was at design school in Vienna. At the time, Martino was still working out what he wanted to do within design, having quit what was to have been a five-year apprenticeship with a master craftsman in wooden furniture in Meran, the spa town in the South Tyrol where he grew up, after realising that fine craftsmanship wasn't for him. He then travelled for two years before studying product design in Vienna and then worked in Milan for Matteo Thun, his teacher before Mari, only to realise that industrial design wasn't for him either. Martino completed a master's degree at the Royal College of Art in London in 2000 and reinvented himself as a designer maker, supporting himself by selling pieces of work, but mostly by teaching, until his 2007 project, A Hundred Chairs in a Hundred Days, for which he literally made a hundred chairs in a hundred days from abandoned furniture and other unwanted junk that he found outside his East London studio. Martino has since adopted a singular way of working, often improvisationally, and a very eclectic practice that includes individual commissions with industrial design projects such as chairs for Margis, bags for Valextra and retail design for Prada, with exhibitions that he designs and curates, including a 2014 show that embraced Murray's work at the Serpentine Sackler Gallery in London. For much of this summer, Martino decamped with his studio to Arles in France for a residency at the Luma Foundation, where they experimented with newly developed sustainable materials. So, Martino, what was it like to meet Mari as a teacher? Um, hello, Alice. Um, <laughs> hello, Martino. <laughs> um, it was a, a very interesting um, clash of, of designers because Matthew Thun was the previous professor uh, in Vienna at the Academy of Applied Arts. Um, and I specifically was uh, was uh, studying ceramics and glass and um, as part of the design school, um, inherited from the from the um, Applied Arts course where I, um, it wasn't a general course by design, but it was led by materials. So um, Enzo Mari um, arrived and we had actually very little knowledge about Enzo Mari because the early 90s was all about um, other designers. You know, it was form follows fun, not form follows thought. <laughs> so it was about, you know, the Philip Stark, you know, the Philip Starks of the days. You know, it was all about beautifying design and, and, and surface treatments and so on. And Enzo Mari was somehow um, in that respect, a little bit forgotten, I guess, in the early 90s. You know, he wasn't quite in vogue. Um, but at the same time, he was, uh, I think he was chosen because he was, um, did many projects with porcelain and ceramics. Um, and uh, being at a specific glass and ceramic course, um, I think he was chosen for that. I think little did we know, and uh, it didn't take long until we realized that this specific designer um, had a very singular way of looking at, at design, but a very strong and a very um, 
deep and, and intellectual way of looking at design. And uh, yeah, it didn't take long until he made us all cry. And <laughs> <laughs> Even you, you're quite a toughie. <laughs> so, but was he, I mean, there are some teachers who make their students cry who are inspiring. Others are just terrifying. I'm guessing Mori was a combination of the two. Yes. I mean, he was very, he was very... Um, quick at analyzing if an idea was at all kind of interesting and had at all any depth, you know, he could really, um, um, it didn't take Enzo Mari long to, to realize if any ideas were at all, um, just a quick, um, a quick, sorry, getting stuck on the ideas. Um, it didn't take Enzo Mari at all long to figure out if the ideas were any good or not. Um, but one way for him to, to test that was, um, that he thought that any idea that anyone had should be able to be communicated with three with three sketches. You know, if you couldn't communicate an idea with three sketches, then it wasn't worthwhile kind of um, continuing. So that made us all kind of uh, really quite good um, drawers and sketches, and and we really kind of had to to put our emphasis on on getting an idea across quite quick and quite well. And is that something that you sort of carried forward? I just thought that's a very useful um, thing for a design teacher to relay to their students. Yes, it's something that I've also used when uh, when I was a teacher myself, um, you know, trying to, uh, with the minimal words, the minimal kind of drawings and sketches, get across an idea that, um, that then can be developed but at first, as, as a first kind of idea, you should be able to explain an idea, you know, with a few words and a few drawings. And how has Enzo Mari been when you've met subsequently? So, yeah, so um, I really kind of met him, um, I guess it was about 15 years later, almost 10, 15 years later, in, in Milan, in his studio, while I was interviewing him for the Design to State of Mind exhibition at the Serpentine. And that was... Um, a really interesting kind of um, experience because I had never been to his studio before. I had never seen the way he actually worked, you know, I'd never been inside his kind of atelier. And um, it was full of really, really interesting objects. It was full of a lot, a lot of prototypes that I've never seen anywhere published. You could really see there was a lot of um thought you know in 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 all those small little uh, collection that he had and um i specifically met him because i wanted to ask him if he would con contribute with uh with one of his kind of personal collections to the to the exhibition and he subsequently um agreed to to lend us the uh, the paperweight collection and um yeah it was definitely an eye opener um, to, to see so yeah it sounds wonderful and of course there are high hopes that it can be saved yeah. and preserved as Castiglione's has been so let's hope that will work out and um but as I understand it he was initially very pleased with the way you integrated his paperweights um within your exhibition at the Serpentine but less pleased with subsequent touring exhibitions yeah, he was initially a little bit skeptical about the exhibition, the Serpentine, because he didn't quite understand what kind of designs uh, and what was the somehow the, the underlying question that I was trying to, or underlying concept of the of the exhibition. He was a bit skeptical because he thought it was going to be one of, another one of those exhibitions with a lot of 
a lot of the best or choice of the best designs of the of a, of a single designer and um I really try to kind of give an overall view of what else design can be um and and especially through through the eyes of a personal um collection so yeah so the exhibition um uh, in london um um we dedicated him um a whole room to this really marvelous collection of paperweights and uh, not only paperweights but also paperweights and his kind of personal um findings writings about about um how he wanted to display those paperweights and of course they weren't all conventional paperweights they were weird and wonderful things he'd found that would fulfill the function of paperweights I mean, it's a brilliant example of improvisational design on his part yeah i think he was trying to explain the the world through the eyes of a paperweight but um the paperweight would then be sitting on a piece of paper that had somehow either uh, a piece of writing um or uh, a musical score or a mathematical equation so for him this was somehow uh, a way to explain the world the design world through those paperweights and they were all exquisitely kind of um um and, and beautiful crafted objects some of them had no uh, no name designers some of them were um more known kind of industrial processes um you know so it was really eclectic collection of objects that he had collected over the last 50 50 years i guess so um um when the exhibition then traveled to to torino to the pinacoteca agnelli um unfortunately we didn't have um, quite enough space to accommodate his collection in in a single room and uh, just to himself and we had to mix it with other um designers other designers collections mari came to the opening and um uh, had a total freak out about um the way that his his personal collection his paperweights were somehow next to other other people's collection and uh, he somehow <laughs> i think insulted me in a way that i'd never been insulted any, any before any time before by any designers calling me a castrated <laughs> designer but i thought it was actually quite a quite a compliment you know um, you don't you, you rarely ever be you know you rarely ever call the castrated designer <laughs> and hopefully never again <laughs> compliment or not <laughs> I thought it would actually oh. be an interesting interesting thing to put on a business card, you know, as a as a, as a design uh, <laughs> title, <laughs> the castrated designer. Um or as a quote or endorsement, castrated yeah. designer and so worry. Yeah. Well, no, that's so that's quite a response and of course incredibly mean to the other designers in the exhibition. So it was a phenomenal show and their collections were extraordinary. too but clearly he felt so insulted um though who knows why um so obviously a, a titanic character how do you feel that maria is perceived now within the global design community and the italian design community i would say until 10 years ago he was a fairly unknown designer outside the in, in the global world this global design community um i think known in the critical design world people who obviously um read his books or followed followed uh, his exhibitions also interesting um if you look online um you find a lot of images of his work you find some of his books you don't find so much um information about his exhibitions actually exhibition designs that he created that i think definitely one of his um is really interesting works i think 
Um, I think in the last 10 years, he has gained a lot of um, interest, reputation, maybe specifically for the Autoprogettazione uh, project. But I think he's still fairly unknown, I think. Um, and I guess he's, he's, he's somehow the designer of the designer somehow. So designers ref reference him. But I think to the bigger public, he's fairly unknown. Um, in comparison to other designers, you know, of his of his age or of his kind of... And why um, yeah. do you think that is? Because Mari is unquestionably a phenomenally talented designer. He's also been a prolific and eclectic one. He may be best known for experimental projects like Auto Progetzione and the books and the games, but he's also done a very wide range of industrial design projects, furniture, ceramics, and so on. So why hasn't he had the same recognition in the wider design community outside critical circles than his peers? Maybe it's it's um, the quality of his design, you know, maybe there isn't the need to, to necessarily... Um, He's done so many interesting products and good products, I think. I'm actually sitting in one of his chairs, the Tonietta chair he made for um, for the um, design company called Zanotta. And mm -hmm. I think he's made so many amazing designs that maybe there wasn't any need to, to kind of um, publicize that a bit more. You know, they were kind of... A lot of the design is, I would say, is a, a very... Um, undesigned, you know, uh, product. You know, they they very simple but very sophisticated at the same time. So maybe they don't they don't scream as loud as other designers work. Maybe, uh, maybe also is a choice of, of his that he was never really interested in so much in the media. He's not someone who would be um, um, doing many interviews. You know, it's not someone who was kind of uh, photographed at the sort of mobile. You know. Um, in all kinds of different um, parties and, and, and openings. So I think he was a very singular, or well, he's a very singular designer, I think. Um, and I think he chose, I think, to, to live a more quiet and a more kind of obscure, maybe, um, way of designing. Um, and I think he definitely was an intellectual, so for sure, he would have been more interested in, in writing and, and working on new projects than being out there kind of talking about it and, and, and publicizing it. And I think for him, the digital uh, digital world was definitely a big challenge. You know, it's something that he, he talked a lot about, you know, later on in his career. He really struggled to understand what the digital world would actually do to his work and how, how he could actually uh, work with that or live with that. Um, yeah. But I, it's a testament to his intellectual acuity that he did struggle with that issue. Many designers of his generation simply ignored it. And I'm sure that the, the quality of his work has benefited from the focus he's given it over the years. I mean, he's also, of course, a very singular character. Um, you've already described him insulting you as no one ever has before, fond though you are of him, um, reducing his students to tears. And he's known for being blunt and uncompromising with his clients, particularly with regard to his politics and his work and what he sees as the deficiencies of the design community. To what degree has his forceful personality influenced perceptions of his work and also himself? Um, I think um, 
the perception I think is is of a of a of a designer who is very very singular, very strong minded, but at the same time I think also I think he was someone who actually, in comparison to many other designers who maybe are more well known, he actually made an awful lot of designs. You know, I would say at least about 1,500 1, objects he designed in his career with, with, with major producers, you know, in Italy, most in Italy, actually. He worked very little abroad, actually. But um, he had worked with, with most of Italian producers. And I think that really showed that, that he somehow, even though he wasn't maybe as loved as other designers, he was difficult, he somehow managed to to work over many, many years with the same companies maybe and very uncom uncompromising, I think, you know, I think that is something that, um, yeah, has very much to do with his character, I think. Um, and of course he did forge very long-term relationships with two companies in particular, the publisher Karani, which published mm -hmm. um, almost all of his books, and there are many of them, and also Danese, um, which yeah. is a very special force in Italian design. Yeah. So I think, yeah, again, when, when he did find the companies that believed in him, that could actually understood his work, and he was actually put in charge of being the creative director. I mean, he wasn't just a designer for the NASA, he was also the, the creative designer. Um, you know, you could you could kind of sense that, you know, he was really giving, um, you know, um, a play field where he could really play and he could really, really kind of um, work on his research, work on his exhibition design, because for the NASA he did everything. He didn't just do some designs. He was the creative director, he did exhibition design, he worked in the catalogs. He really worked on everything, you know, that, that was the NASA. He worked on the on, on the on the logo itself. Um he was somehow the NASA, I would I would I would say. I mean and um and also interesting to see as soon as he kind of stopped working with the NASA, the company somehow disappeared until it resurfaced a few years ago. Um, in, a, in a different kind of light. But I think um, Danese was and is the Enzo Mari. I think with uh, Karaini as well, I think um, he was um, the designer who really kind of um, did a whole range of books, you know, not just design books. He did a lot of children's books, he did a lot of uh, writing, design writing. He did his Autoprojetazione book with them, you know, so... I think he was a brilliant communicator somehow, um, in many ways. Um, he, you know, his, his books and his book covers are very, very strong, I think. You know, there is yeah, a real sense that, uh, again, he was very clear and very strong in, in communicating his ideas. Um, but also the name of his products were really, really, I feel really strong and really somehow also funny and quirky as well at the same time. It wasn't stiff words, you know, it wasn't like numbers, you know, for a man that, that somehow is known for his kind of severeness, you know, it wasn't a mathematical kind of equation and, you know, a title it would give a, you know, a product. They were really kind of poetic uh, statements, quite short and yeah, interesting. 
And then suddenly he did several projects, the games and the children's books for his own children. And there's such a delightful, fresh spontaneity and playful quality to them. Um, but it would also be nice to think that the Triennale exhibition may persuade some of the big manufacturers who commissioned other projects from him that haven't been produced for many years to put them back into production. I mean, a couple of years ago, for example, David Chipperfield, the British architect, became creative director of Driade, and he said the absolute gem in the archive was a series of sofas and chairs designed by Mari that hadn't been in production for many mm -hmm. years. They are now, and they're sensational. So obviously you're a great admirer of Mari's work, despite his best efforts to offend you. Um, can you give three examples of projects that you find particularly interesting and explain why? Yeah. So for me, for me, one of the earliest projects that I remember seeing um, was the exhibition design for the Nese. It was made from cardboard and um, he called them struttura cellulare, um, cellular structure, in English. And uh, this is back in 1957 when he basically was talking about using sustainable material for exhibition design, for fair designs. Um, and he did um, a whole collection of, over the years, he did a whole collection of really interesting exhibition design, display design made from cardboard. And um, his very uh, way of using, folding a piece of cardboard into a three dimensional structure and creating um, an interesting spatial concept, I think is something very interesting. Also in using, um, not thinking just um, of cardboard, but actually looking at cardboard in a, in a kind of, um, and looking at the cardboard and, and seeing that cardboard is made out of fiber. So he was interested in the fiber in the cardboard and thinking that the fiber could be re recomposed in many different you know, objects. So you, you make something, you recycle it, and that fiber then becomes another cardboard box. So it's kind of the fiber that for him was important. And it's the cellular fiber. So, yeah. Um, no, that's a fantastic example. He also did a wonderful um, children's toy, which was a sort of cardboard cutout castle or castle battlements that kids could play on. Um, also very beautiful. So your second choice. So my second choice is, is an obvious one. is auto progettazione. <laughs> It's the <laughs> obvious, but great. <laughs> so why? So the other progettazione is, um, I guess, again, it's the, it's a designer's kind of dream <laughs> dream project. We all wish we had we had invented it, but uh, at the same time, he he didn't just mean to be the designer who invented that project. He wanted to actually have feedback. He was interested in 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 creating a manual, a book of how you could design your own furniture and how you could make them. And uh, the idea of anyone, everyone, anyone using a, a hammer and a nail was for him very interesting in the soul because he thought it was the, it was the simplest kind of construction method, uh, you know, the most archaic maybe construction method that, that we know in the last maybe three, 400 years. So if you can't nail, if you can't sew a piece of wood, if you can't nail a piece of wood, you know, you're absolutely helpless. You know, that's, you know, you, you, you for him, you weren't quite kind of human almost, you know, you should at least hit your finger once with a hammer to understand that when you create something, you know, you, you have to become better by um, trying harder, by learning 
a particular skill. So it was about starting at the very, very basic um, um, basics of constructing a piece of furniture. But at the same time, I really, I really love his project because he asked um, everyone that um, made a piece of furniture from his uh, drawings, and he will give the drawings for free initially. You, know, you could have, uh, you could copy, you could copy his instructions, but he would ask um, ask you to send him back ways that you could improve these designs. You know, you could you could help him designing actually a better piece of furniture. And I think that was very interesting. So it was a very early form of open source. You know, yeah. he gives you the, he gives you the the instructions for free. You um, you try it out yourself. You hit your your finger with a hammer because maybe you know that's good at the beginning. You learn, <laughs> you learn you learn a skill. You learn what you do. Uh, you become maybe a master of it because maybe by the by the tenth nail you actually know how to how to nail something together. But at the same time, maybe when you start constructing something, you realize actually there's a much better way, cleverer way, more beautiful way of doing of making a piece of furniture. So that was somehow feeding back to him. And I think this was, I think, really interesting. I think this project that it wasn't a one way street where a designer makes it and then, you know, okay, um, um, you follow exactly the, the exact instructions, but actually there was a feedback and there was kind of an open source to that. Exactly. And actually, that I think was the truly original element of that project, the interactivity, because there had been other examples, Louise Brigham, Gerrit Rietveld, um, producing similar DIY furniture systems by releasing specifications before, but there'd never been the sort of two-way street of the exchange of ideas. So your third favourite Murray project, what's that? So my... My my third favorite uh, my project is called uh, Samos Samos. It's basically a series of, of um, porcelain um, objects. He calls it "Per la lavorazione a mano della porcellana" for the handmade porcelain um, object. So basically, he um, went to um, to a ceramic workshop and worked with ceramic um, clay, with porcelain clay, and he made a whole series of how you could create objects without throwing them, you know, without being a master. So, so he really used his skill as, as an observer. You know, how can you create a, um, a 3D objects out of a single piece of clay again? So we know that clay is also one of the earliest kind of materials that, that uh, the humans have, have uh, known to to kind of make vessels and and containers, so I think for me this is a very poetic way of 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 using clay and especially porcelain. Um, he would roll them in a particular way. He would he would kind of create little little uh, squares and then out of the squares create a kind of a, um, um, a bowl. He would really kind of very um, very playful, almost the way a child would somehow. Um, work, but obviously with his rigor and with his understanding of 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 objects and of of ways of of um, <clears throat> construction. So for me, this is a really interesting project. Not so known, I guess, but um, I think for me it's very poetic. Um, I work a lot myself in in clay, and when you know when you when you kind of um, you know sit in front of a big lump of clay and you think, what I'm going to make now? There aren't that many techniques that you can use, you know. And I think he really showed that there's so many different ways actually 
um, of looking at the piece of actually using a piece of clay and uh, to create the, a vessel. And you've spoken very movingly about how inspired he was and excited by the possibilities of materiality and experimenting with different materials. How important do you think fine craftsmanship was to him? I mean, as you said, he was traditional in many respects in that he had a profound respect for sort of fundamental um, methods of working, whether it's banging a, a nail into wood or pounding clay. Did he tend to prioritise people using those materials resourcefully and improvisationally over the what is normally sort of fetishised as the sophistication of fine craftsmanship? Or do you think he respected and admired that too? I think he was very interested in 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 um, in in any kind of craftsmanship. I mean, I know he was a big big collector of um, of knives, and that's actually something I wanted to um, ask him. You know, if I could <laughs> borrow this uh, this collection of knives for the exhibition, the Serpentine, and he would he didn't want to kind of lend them, but um, but he was very interested in in uh, in craftsmanship in um, artisans. But he was generally interested in people who made objects. So for him, it was very important as a designer to look at or to think who is going to be the person who's going to make my design. So it wasn't about a design that could that would be made by someone somewhere in the world, you know, in some kind of workshop. He wanted to know who the person is going to be. And he wanted to design in a way that the person making it actually um, wouldn't make useless um, and 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 unnecessary kind of steps to create this object. So he was really much thinking about who is going to make it, how they're going to make it, and where it's going to be made. And I think that's also very very. Um, I think he uh, was very early on somehow thinking about also sustainability in that way. You know, um, we we are very much in his work now, where we are trying to think where are things made, how are they made, uh, who makes them. You know, we, we want to know who the person is because we want to make sure that this person isn't exploited. This person isn't doing something that is absolutely mundane and stupid in a, in a, in a big factory. So for him, these were very important parts. And in that sense, yeah, um, the artisans were for him very important. And he worked very closely with them. He was someone who would spend, you know, the whole day in a, in a workshop, in a factory, standing next to the to the work of the artisan and and have a conversation with that person, maybe even try to persuade him to to uh, or maybe have an intellectual conversation with that person, you know, about the material, about what that person was doing, and so on. And there's an interesting allusion to the very early days of industrial design and the work of Christopher Dresser, who's generally seen as the first um, industrial designer, questionable though that claim would be. I mean, he was a hugely gifted and prolific designer. And one of the most important aspects of his work was his close relationship to the skilled industrial workers who made it. So he apparently always knew who had the requisite skills and knowledge at the various factories he'd worked with. He even set up the Linthorpe Pottery as a sort of ideal manufactory um, 
to skill up the local workforce and encourage specific skills. So, I mean, it's wonderful to think of Mari um, striking out and sort of reinventing um, that in post-war Italy. I mean, throughout your discussion of Mari, again and again, absolutely rightly, you refer to the fact that he was wrestling with issues um, at a time when they weren't necessarily particularly fashionable, like sustainability, industrial craftsmanship, which have subsequently become much more important. Your reference to the open source experiment with Autoprogezione um, falls into that category too. I mean, it's a hoary old cliche to describe designers to be ahead of their time. But do you think Mari truly was? Because there has been a resurgence of interest in his work um, among designers and design commentators in the last decade. Is that um, simply due to the quality of his work, um, the fact that everyone loves a rediscovery, but it is also because so many of his core concerns presaged really important issues in design today? Yeah, I think his, his, his great awareness uh, of today, I think, is definitely um, him being someone who questioned design constantly question design and I think we are we are we have been returning for some years now thanks God to maybe a maybe a, another design world you know we we not that long ago we started talking about social design environmental design critical design but even even design that is is neither or you know neither art or is design you know we started kind of taking labels away but adding new labels I think at the same time and I think he's definitely part of that. You know, I think he's definitely someone who inspired a lot of young designers to not just look at the formal quality of a piece of work um, and its kind of surface, but really kind of look at it much deeper and, and how this object would influence the, the, the consumer, the user, how uh, its longevity, sustainability, you know, where it was made and, and so on, where, where it came from. And I guess also the way that um, designers work with companies, you know, to have a more um, long kind of perspective in terms of collaborations. You know, a lot of, lot of companies lo lo love to work once or twice with a designer and then move on to the next, to the next lot. Um, and I think more and more companies, I think, are also trying to work, yeah, in, in that sense, uh, on a longer project, you know, over years. And, and, and have a conversation with, with designers rather than just collect them a bit like you collect, I don't know, stamps or, or kind of names. <laughs> um, one more of those, you know, tick. Uh, so yeah, um, but I think, yeah, his, his influence, I think, um, I actually think that this exhibition in particular will uh, even more kind of reinforce his his great intellectual kind of contribution to the design world. And I think uh, Enter Murray's um, long-spanning career um, is, 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 has been, you know, re, um, rediscovered lately, but I do think that his, his work has always been alive. His, his work is out there. And I think uh, he's been a great influence and he's a great influence to all of us designers to understand that we have to be, um, uncompromising sometimes and we have to be um, believing in our own ideas. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Martino. And difficult though it may have been at the time, you are very, very lucky to have been taught by Enzo Mari. And thank you so much for sharing um, your experiences of Mari himself and your interpretations of his work with us. Thank you and arrivederci. Thank you.